good morning once again, Seven Mile Road. So we are uh, in week five of our series on, on, in, on in, uh, justice. And this morning specifically, we are considering the issue uh, of racial reconciliation. Now, can I be honest? In preparing for this week, I would say that I had no clue what I was getting myself into. So you see, over the last several months, I've been doing uh, all sorts of things, like reading books and, and watching documentaries. I've been listening to lectures and, and reading news articles. And to be honest, I've been overwhelmed by the sheer enormity and complexity of what we are discussing this morning. You know, initially, I wanted to, to preach on this topic because of the recent events in our country. The fact that names like Freddie Gray or Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin have become household names for us. Or the fact that I was constantly hearing about Muslims or even people who resemble Muslims being assaulted, even, even killed, and there are places of worship being burned down in different parts of our country. Or the fact that right in our backyard, in a place like Upper Dublin, just a few miles away from here, flyers from the KKK were being dropped off at homes because they were looking for new recruits, new people to come and to join their cause. It was like every day there was a new example, a new illustration of, of racism in our land. But you see, the more and more that I read, the more and more that I was reminded that racism is far from just being a recent issue in our country. No, in fact, some would argue that racism has been in our country since its inception. Like when we consider the, the story of Native Americans who were kicked out of their own country, even put to death, so that a set of foreigners could come and claim this land as their own. Or the story of Africans who were kidnapped from their own countries, from the places that they lived, and packed into ships like sardines, and traveled thousands of miles to come to this country and serve as slaves in this land for our country's benefit and profit. And then there's the stories of, of hundreds of thousands of Japanese men and women, many of them who were citizens of this country, uh, contributors to the, the, the good of this country, who were forced into internment camps during World War II. Or how do we forget about Jim Crow laws in the US? that dictated everything from which public schools African-Americans were able to attend to which uh, public water fountains they could drink from. You see, racism runs deep in our country. It's far from being a recent issue. It's historical. It's systemic in our country. And you know what? It's not even just a problem that's out there. Because when you read books, and you watch lectures, and you, you, you read news articles, it can sort of feel that way. I can think this is just sort of someone else's story. This is someone else's experience. But over these last couple of months, what I've also been able to learn is that racism is actually a reality for many of us. Like Keith could tell you the story about when he was pulled over in the mainline section of Philadelphia for a busted taillight, even though None of the lights on his car had any issues with it. And he was pulled over and he was grilled by a cop who wanted to know why Keith wasn't in the area just like the main line. Or Vivek and Ann could tell you the story. Vivek and Ann just moved from India to Philadelphia not too long ago and they would tell you the story of how their seven-year-old son was ridiculed by his peers for being Indian. 
They made fun of his mannerisms, and they made fun of his Indian lunch that smelled. And this was the first experience of their little boy in a new school in a new country. Or, or Liana could tell you the story about the day that she was standing on the corner in Fishtown with her sister and her nephew when a truck full of Caucasian men drove up and pulled up beside them and yelled at them to go home, and they finished that sentence by calling them the N-word. And the three of them stood there, completely confused and completely distraught by what had just happened. Or, or one of our families could tell you the story of how their daughter wasn't invited to a party that was happening in their neighborhood. And when their daughter asked their friend why it is that she wasn't invited, her friend told her that only pink people were allowed to come and that her skin was too dark. Or I know that for some of you, if you're sitting here and, and you're a white American, when people talk about things like majority culture or white privilege, you're left almost feeling guilty for the fact that you're even white, right? And, and even if you wanted to step into this conversation, it feels like there's landmines all over the place and, and you have to tiptoe around afraid of possibly or potentially saying the wrong thing. You see, racism isn't just found in our history books or in news articles. It's also found in our own stories. It's found in the stories of people that are sitting to the left of you and to the right of you. And so as I began to feel the complexity of this issue, and I started to feel the, the proximity of this issue, if I were to be honest, I didn't know where to get started. And that's why I so appreciated what Pastor Sibby said two weeks ago when he was preaching on the topic of abortion. I mean, he was wondering, you know, how in the world will he be able to summarize into a 30-minute sermon a, a, a topic that is this big, like abortion? And I want to say, this, this week, I feel the same exact way. You know, and so it's important for me to accept that something this big cannot be addressed in one morning, right? It's just not going to happen. It's not possible. And so this sermon will not be the definitive word on racial reconciliation. Instead, my hope for this morning is to simply move the ball down the field one more yard, right? That this morning, as Christians, we would do again what we do every time we find brokenness in our world, that we would look to Jesus. Because we consider this enormous topic, and it really is an enormous topic, and as we consider, is there any hope for racial reconciliation? And as we consider, is peace even possible in this world? Are we just talking about something that's not even possible? Well, what I pray is that we'll realize that reconciliation and peace between people has always been on God's heart. Reconciliation and peace between people has always been on God's heart. Reconciliation and peace between people has always been on God's radar. In fact, it's one of the primary reasons why Jesus even came to this earth. So what I want to do is I want us to consider Ephesians 2 that Jess just read for us. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 14 to 17 together this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. So let's pray together and ask God for help as we consider this weighty topic. Let's pray. Lord, again, there is so much to say about this topic. It is heavy, it's enormous, and it's personal. And so this morning, we don't look to a preacher. Instead, we look to Jesus. May your son give us understanding and insight. May he change our hearts and, and change our lives so that we would know peace through him. 
And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. It's found on page 976 of the Bibles in front of you. So I want to encourage you to pull out those Bibles to open up to page 976. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And so as you turn to that passage, let me tell you a little, a little story. So it was October 29th, uh, 2008. And so the time was right around 10 p.m. that evening. And on that evening, Sharon and I, my wife and I, and a bunch of our friends, we were walking up and down Cotman Avenue, right? And on that evening, we found ourselves doing something that we had never, ever done before. You see, we would walk up to random strangers and we would give them a hug, right? And then we would walk up to little children and we would give them a high five. I'm talking about people at bus stops, people who were sitting in their cars. It didn't matter who we were talking about. We were embracing and cheering on everyone that we saw. And here's the crazy thing. It wasn't just us, right? Everybody who was walking up and down Cotman Avenue that day was doing the same exact thing. Now listen, if you're a good Philadelphian, and I hope you're a good Philadelphian, you know what that was actually about. You see, that evening, the Phillies had just won the World Series, right? And, and so we were rejoicing in that good news. It was incredible news. It was news that we were waiting for for so many years for it to come true, and it finally happened. And you see, this good news was so, actually so incredible that it actually did something that was unbelievable. It brought complete and utter strangers together. People who would have otherwise completely ignored each other or, or stared each other down or maybe even given each other the finger were now embracing one another, right? And you see, the moral of the story is this, that, that good news, great news, has the power to bring complete and utter strangers together. Good news or great news has the power to bring complete and utter strangers, even enemies, together. So why do I mention this? Because you see, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 is actually a summary of the greatest news in the entire world. It's the greatest news. If you're, if you're a Christian, you're probably familiar with it because these first 10 verses of this chapter give us an amazing explanation of this good news, of this gospel. You see, these 10 verses, it tells us that you and I, we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses, right? That we didn't care for God, that we didn't want anything to do with God. We just cared about ourselves. We cared about our own lives, and we cared about our own desires and our own passions. And in fact, the scripture said that we actually lived as enemies to God. But here's the good news. The good news is that though we didn't love him, he loved us. And though we deserved to die, he showed us mercy. And though we should have been separated from him forever, he placed us into his family. And you see, all of that was made possible through Jesus. Would you hear that? That's good news. You see, because Jesus died in our place, because he died for our sins, we were shown mercy and grace and love instead of all the things that we deserved. If you're a Christian sitting here this morning, would you hear that again? Especially if you've heard that a million times before, because there's a chance that that hits our heart and hits our mind and it just rolls off. Would you hear again, that is good news God did not treat you as you deserved. 
Instead, he showed you mercy and grace and great love, though you deserve to be separated from him forever. And what the scriptures say is this, that when we place our trust in him, we who were once far off are now reconciled vertically with God. We who were once far off are now reconciled vertically with God. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's better news than the World Series. That's great news. It is the ultimate news that we need to hear. Would you hear that? That is good news for you. But here's the thing. That's not it. Like we said before, right? This good news doesn't just affect this, though it does. It also affects this, right? And what we're about to consider right now in verses 11 to 22 is exactly that. You see, what Paul is essentially saying here in this section is this, that what the World Series did to Philadelphians on Cotman Avenue in 2008 was exactly, and even more so, what the gospel did for Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago, right? What the World Series did for Philadelphians on Cotman Avenue in 2008 is what the gospel did to Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of those categories before, right? Jew and Gentile. But if not, here's a way to think about it. Think about Democrat and Republican, right? Or, or think about liberal and conservative. Or think about black lives matter and all lives matter, right? You feel the tension of that? You feel the, the hatred and the, the animosity that exists between those two people. You see, these groups of people were like oil and water. Theologically and, and culturally and, and racially, they were different in every way. Right? Jews were Israelites. They were the, the people of God. And Gentiles were basically anyone who was not a Jew. So that included Italians and, and Africans, Greeks and, and Indians and Asians. So you imagine... Right? Everything about them was different. Everything from what they wore to how they spoke. From what they ate to the, to the color of their skin. I mean, there were even laws in place telling them that they needed to stay away from each other. That sounds familiar, right? Laws in place telling them that they needed to stay away from each other. In every way, these two groups did not mix. And what Paul is saying is this. The good news of the gospel is so good that it did the impossible. It brought reconciliation between two groups of people that were historically and systemically at odds with each other. Now, the question we should be asking ourselves is this. How did that happen? We see in our day, often our plans for peace are through things like protests and policies. And let me tell you, the truth is, there is such a need for those types of things, right? We thank God. We thank God for people who marched or who sat or who stood up in, in, in fighting against and protesting against racism, right? Consider all the changes that have happened in our country because of the faithfulness of men and women who did such things. And we're grateful for those who fight against unjust laws that, that promote racism, Think about all the changes that have happened when Jim Crow was, was torn apart. That was important, and we're grateful for people who fought against those types of things. You see, those things are right, and those things are good. But here's the thing. God's plan for peace is not ultimately in protests or policies. 
Instead, it's in a person. God's plan for peace is not ultimately in protests and policies. Instead, it's in a person. Let's take a look. We'll look at verses 14 to 16. Would you turn there and look at it with me? This is what he says. This is what Paul says. He says, for he, that's Jesus, himself is our peace who has made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Those three verses are packed with stuff. There's a lot going on there. But I want to drive home just one main point, right? And that's this. That just like God reconciled Jews and Gentiles to himself through the cross of Christ, that he also reconciled Jews and Gentiles to each other through the cross of Christ. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? Just like God reconciled Jews and Gentiles to himself through the cross of Christ, he also Reconciled Jews and Gentiles to each other through the cross of Christ. And here's the thing. you got to listen to this, right? You can't have one without the other. You can't say, you know what, the vertical is real, but the horizontal is just a metaphor. Listen, if the vertical is real, then the horizontal must be real. In fact, if we say that the horizontal is just a metaphor, what I want to say is maybe then you just think that the vertical is just a metaphor as well. But you see, Paul is saying that these two passages, verses 1 through 10 and then 11 to 22, are so tightly connected that you can't have one without the other. Reconciliation with God immediately requires reconciliation with others. Reconciliation with God immediately requires reconciliation with others. In fact, when you read verse 18, it says this. Paul is saying to the Jews and Gentiles, he's saying, Don't you know that through one spirit, we now have access to one Father? Or verse 19, he says, We're of the household of God. You see, the idea, the picture that's being presented here is that of adoption. Paul is saying that when God saves us, he doesn't just reconcile us to him, he actually adopts us into his family. You know, a few weeks ago, we had a forum on adoption here at the church, and, and we spoke on what adoption looks like and what it entails. Now imagine Sharon and I went to that forum, and we went home that evening, and we said, you know what, we want to adopt a child. And so we make the steps to do so, and we bring in a brand new uh, child into our family. So now we would have four kids right, in our family. And our three kids would have actually one more sibling. Well, imagine if one day our adopted kid came up to me and he said, listen, listen, dad, listen, I'm cool with having a new dad, but I'm not cool with my brothers and sisters, right? Well, I think what I would do is I would, I would pull him aside and say, son, listen, I don't think you get it, right? Because the day that you got a new father, you also got new brothers and sisters, you see, there's no way that one can be real without the other being real as well. One follows the other, right? One requires the other. The only way that this family will work is, is, is if you accept that you have a, not only a new daddy, but you also have new brothers and sisters. And you see, Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 that this is what has happened between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus' death brought peace. 
He brought Jew and Gentile into the same family. And so what that means is that not only do they have a new daddy, they have new brothers and sisters. In fact, verse 14 even says that the dividing wall of hostility was torn down. And guess what? There was actually a literal wall that divided them. Archaeologists will tell us that in the Temple of Jerusalem, there were four courts, right? And so the outer court was the, the court of the Gentiles. And then as you move in beyond that, there was the court of women. And then beyond that was the court of men. And then beyond that was the court of the priests. So each way that you went in, it got more and more exclusive. Well, between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was literally a wall. And archaeologists have literally found a wall, a wall with an inscription on it that said, if you pass this, you will die. You see, it is this wall that Paul had in mind. And Paul is saying here, he's saying, when Jesus' body was broken, that wall was broken. Right? When Jesus' body was torn apart, that wall was torn apart. These two groups of people who wanted nothing to do with each other, we're now a part of the same family. But here's the thing. That may have been true, but they were not having it. Right? That may have been true, but they were not having it. Because as quickly as those walls were torn down, they wasted no time trying to build it back up again. This morning, we don't have time to look at it, but if you looked at uh, Acts chapter 10 or Galatians chapter 2, you would see specific examples of how they were trying to build back up that wall again. But you see, what we're seeing in those chapters is Jews and Gentiles essentially saying this. They're saying, listen, I'm cool with having a new dad, but I don't want anything to do with my brothers and sisters. Instead, they prefer to just be with people who looked like them. Just be around people who ate food just like they did. Just to be around people who believed the same things that they believed. Now hear me. That wasn't just a problem 2,000 years ago with those groups of people. You and I tend to be that way as well. In fact, it's how the whole world operates. You know, I went to school, I went to high school at Central in Ani. It's the best high school in the world. If you didn't go, exactly. If you didn't go there, I feel sorry for you, but it was a great high school, right? I loved that high school for many reasons, but one of the reasons specifically that I loved that high school was because of how diverse it was. The, the student body of that school was filled with children of every different color of the rainbow, and I loved that. I loved going to that school because of that. But you know what? The oddest thing would happen every morning at Central. Right? Every morning when you walk into that school and you walk up those steps and go into the lunchroom, you would walk into that lunchroom and you know, you, do you know what you would see? You would see white kids sitting with white kids. And you would see black kids sitting with black kids. And you would see Indian kids sitting with Indian kids and Asian kids sitting with Asian kids. And listen, there were no signs. I looked. There's no signs anywhere that said that you had to sit there. This, wasn't, this was post-segregation, right? I'm not that old, right? So this wasn't like a, a rule of any kind. We just naturally did it. And so I would sit, let me tell you, I would sit with Indians that I had nothing in common with, right? I didn't know anything about. But just because, if I were to be honest, it was more comfortable with that, that way. We look alike, and so we must have things in common, or, or we must see things the same way, and so it was easier. But here's the thing, that wasn't even just limited to Central High School out there in the city. That's the truth here as well. It can be the same way here as well. 
You see, back in 2013, when I was being commissioned to be a pastor here at this church, uh, I, I invited a whole bunch of friends and family to be a part of that day, and, and I'm grateful that they came. And, and I'll never forget one of the interactions that I had with a person that day. A, a friend of mine, a Christian, came to the service, and, and he came to see me get commissioned. And after the service, he came up to me, and he said, listen, he said, bro, that, that service was so great. I had a wonderful time. I just, I thought the service was wonderful. I loved everything about it. But he said, but I could never imagine going to a church with so many Indians inside of it. You see, this brother was actually looking for a church. He was actually looking for a church. And he loved everything about it. But at the end of the day, the Indian piece was just too hard. Listen, I can't lie, right? I, I was a bit thrown off. I felt like I wanted to punch him in his face. But it probably wouldn't be a good start to pastoral ministry, right? <laughs> but I get it. I get it. It's how we naturally are. All of us. All of us can be that way. All of us can try to work really hard to build back up what Jesus has torn down. In fact, consider this. Sociologists say that for a church to be considered multi-ethnic, they use something called the 80-20 rule, right? What that means is basically up to 80% of your church can be one group of people, and 20% of your church can be another group of people, and if that happens, it's considered a multi-ethnic church. Right? So if 80% of your church is white and 20% of your church is other, it's considered multi-ethnic. Or if 80% of your church is black and 20% of your church is other, it's considered multi-ethnic. And it, when you hear that, you want to say 80% is a pretty generous number, right? That's a pretty high number. But consider this. Even with that generous of a number, did you know that only 2% of the churches in America would be considered multi-ethnic? 2%. What that means is right now when we're meeting, most churches in America are basically all white or all black or all Latino or all Asian or all Indian, whatever it might be. The question is, why is that? Because all of us can be just like my friend. All of us, if we were to be honest, can lead, can lean towards homogeny, right? We prefer we prefer being around people who look like us and think like we do and act like us and eat the same foods and walk like us. That's what we prefer. And when we do that, we are working hard to build up a wall that Christ has already torn down. Now listen to some of my road. By God's grace, by God's grace, he has allowed us to be a diverse church. And I really want to stress, it's by God's grace Right? We, we haven't had a strategy or, or something particular that we did. We prayed that God would do it, and he did do it, and he is doing it. Right? So that means that we're a part of that 2% that we're talking about. And we praise God for that because he really did do it. By God's grace, this room is a diverse room. But can I ask you, how about your living room or your family room? or whatever room that you gather in in your house? How diverse are the people that gather in your home? I mean, who are you sharing your life with? Who are you eating meals with? Whose needs and burdens are you caring for? If you were to be honest, is it just simply people who are like you, that look the way that you do, that think the way that you do, that 
that you feel most comfortable around? If so, Paul wants to remind you, brothers and sisters, you don't just have a new daddy. You have new siblings as well. You see, because the vertical is real, the horizontal is real too. And when we don't believe that, we're building back up a wall that Christ gave his life to tear down. You know, one pastor named Brian Loritz made an interesting point. He said, he said that if you study the MO of, of the Apostle Paul, if you study the, the way that he operated in the ministry, you would see him sort of do two things, right? Anytime he went into a town, he would first go into the synagogue, and then he would preach the gospel to the Jews, right? And then after that, he would go out into the marketplace, and he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he would do that over and over again in different cities, over and over again. He would go first to the Jews and preach the gospel, and then to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. He did that over and over again. But what you'll notice is this. When people began responding to the gospel, as Jews believed the gospel and became Christians, as Gentiles believed the gospel and became Christians, you never saw Paul build the first Gentile church of Nazareth on the north side and then the first Jewish church of Nazareth on the south side. He never did that, right? No, instead what he did was he would build the church at Ephesus, right? Because he would say, why, on why in the world would I try to separate what Christ has brought together? Why would I try to separate what Christ has brought together? Why would I try to erect a wall between you if Jesus died to tear it down? He's saying, no, Jew and Gentile, you are now one. So you need to live as one. As messy as that might be, you need to figure it out. In fact, he says in verse 15, he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. One new man. Jew and Gentile, you used to be two, but now you're one new man. That same pastor, Brian Loritz, helped me to understand one more thing. He said that in the Greek, there are two words that are used for new, right, in the Greek. There's the word neos, and then there's the word kainos, words that are used for the word Greek, for the word new. And so the word neos, it means new in relation to time. Right? It, it's like the latest or the newest of something. So, for example, the, the iPhone 7 would be Neos, right? Or the latest 747 would be Neos. But Kainos, the word that's being used here in verse 15, is actually different. Kainos is not just new in relation to time, it's actually new in relation to kind, in terms of category. So, if Neos is the iPhone 7, Kainos would be Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone. You get that? Or, or if Neos was the latest 747, then Kainos would be the Wright brothers who came up with the airplane. And you see, what Paul is saying here is this, that Jesus Christ died to build an entirely new thing that we had never seen before. Jesus died to create a new category that has never existed before. Jesus died to make Jews and Gentiles one, and the way that he would do that is through the church. You see, through the church, Paul says, you are one new man in Christ. And what that means is this, that I'm not an Indian Christian first and foremost. I'm not an Indian Christian first and foremost, and you're not white Christians or black Christians, or Latino Christians. No, I am a Christian who is Indian. 
Now, that might sound like semantics, right? But you see, the order matters. Because Christian defines me, and the other word describes me. Do you get that? Christian defines me. It's my primary identity, and the other word describes me. And it's not the other way around. Now, hear me. I'm not at all saying that you're no longer white or, or black or Latino or Indian anymore, right? Paul isn't calling us to try to try real hard to rub off our colors, right? He's not calling us to become transparent people, right? And he's not even calling us to be colorblind, right? He's not saying when you look out into the world, don't see color, right? It's actually the complete opposite that he's saying. In fact, we would see that in Revelation chapter 7. It's the last book of the Bible. Uh, the apostle John, who's the author of that book, he has a vision, and he has a vision of heaven. And it says that when he looks up into heaven, he sees that he, he, he sees standing there people of every nation and every language and every tribe. Now, the question is, how did he realize that? How did he realize that these were people that were all different, right? I mean, it wasn't as though there were like signs there that they kind of joined together around in categories. No, the, the way that he realized that is because people in heaven looked different from each other. So what that means is this. If you're black on earth, guess what? You're going to be black in heaven, right? If you're Latino on earth, that means you're going to be Latino in heaven. If you're white on earth, you're going to be white in heaven. You see, God isn't creating a group of transparent people that no longer care about their races or their culture. No, instead, God is calling us to celebrate those things. Those are gifts, right? Those are right things, good things. God did that on purpose. It's a gift to us. It's not a, a curse or a mistake. It's a gift. We get to celebrate those things. It's a wonderful gift from God. And so we celebrate that about ourselves and about each other. But while we celebrate, we do so remembering that in Christ, you are now one new man. So Christian defines me, and the other word describes me. This is what God has accomplished through Christ. And so Seven Mile Road, what this requires is a reorientation of our thinking. We have to be so convinced, so convinced of the vertical, that it completely changes the way that we see the horizontal the way that we see one another who are right in here. Now, here's the thing. This isn't just meant to be good news for us, right? Though it is. It's meant to be good news for the entire world. It's meant to be good news for everyone, not just in here, but out there as well. Look at verse 17. He says, And he came, and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. You see, what we need to understand is that from the beginning, this message of peace was meant for the entire world. Seven Mile Road, listen, if you want to deal with racism out there, well, then the game plan is the same exact thing as it is in here, right? God's plan for peace is ultimately in a person. And you see, the reason why is because this, as one professor put it, racism is ultimately not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Right? Racism is ultimately not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Listen, I'm not at all trying to deny the fact that the issue of racism is so complex. It's really complex. Right? There's history and there's uh, systemic issues that we need to be concerned about. There's a, there's a lack of equity among us. There's tons of ignorance. There's so much ignorance. 
And all of those things are hard and they're real and they need to be dealt with and we should really work hard to deal with those things, no doubt. But we have to remember that racism did not begin in the 1600s. Racism began in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered into this world, it caused us to hate our brother and our sister. It caused us to, to love ourselves more than we love others. You see, racism is a sinful activity. Racism is a satanic activity. So though this world absolutely needs things like protests and policies, and we do, what we ultimately need is peace that comes from Jesus. What this world ultimately needs is to hear the good news of the gospel that we have celebrated, of this Jesus who came not only just to reconcile us to himself, but also who came to reconcile us to one another. Because you see, this good news is so good that it has the ability, would you believe that? It has the ability to bring complete strangers together. So what does that practically look like? One pastor said this, you know, sometimes when we talk about evangelism or sharing the gospel with somebody, we, we sort of approach it this way. We have this great gospel that we want to share with people, and it really is great. It's life-transforming truth, good truth. And so what do we do? We go to a person, and we essentially, we pull their soul out of, outside of them, right? We pull their soul outside, and we connect it with the gospel. And we connect it with the gospel, hoping that something will happen. And if and when it does happen, we sort of put their soul back into their body and we send them along, along their way, right? But we have no regard for who they are, no regard for their experiences, no regard for the things that they struggle with or how the world has hurt them or how they see the world or even how the world sees them. Sometimes all we're hoping for is just conversion. But you see, the scriptures call for something totally different. 1 Corinthians 9, look at what Paul says. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. You see, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. What is Paul saying here? He sold wants other people to share in the, 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 the blessings of the gospel. He, sh he so wants to see people being won over the, by the gospel, to, to experience the, the vertical reconciliation that exists between them and God and the, the, the horizontal reconciliation that can exist between them and others, that he has become all things to all people. To the Jew, he became like a Jew. And to the Gentile, he became like a Gentile. In other words... Paul's crew, or his posse, consisted of all kinds of people. So what that means is that on a Friday night, you would find Paul having a Sabbath meal and talking about the Jewish life at Joshua's house. And then on Tuesday, you would see him 
eating pork sandwiches and talking about the Gentile life at Cornelius' house. You see, Paul didn't just pull somebody's soul outside of their body and, and preach the gospel uh, to it. Instead, he ate with people, and he heard their stories, and he heard about their hurts and the way that the world has treated them and the way that they see the world. He built, he built friendships, and in doing so, he shared the gospel and won people to Christ. You see, some of my wrote, our calling is exactly the same. We are called to go and to share the gospel with people who are completely unlike us, with people who don't look like us, who don't think like we do, who don't eat the same foods that we do. And as we do, we don't just pull their soul out and give them the gospel. No, we listen. We learn about their lives and their beliefs, even if we disagree with them. Their hurts, the things that have caused them to think and see the world the way that it is. We empathize with them. We rejoice in the things that they rejoice in. We mourn over the things that they mourn over, even if we don't understand why they're mourning. We build relationships. We go to birthday parties. We invite them over to our house for dinner. And all the while, we point them to Jesus. Because you see, God's plan for reconciliation out there is exactly as it is in here. True racial reconciliation is only possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so some of my role, just like I said when we got started, there is a lot more to be said. There's a lot more for us to learn, and there's a ton of things for us to do. And that's why I'm glad for this evening, for example, that we get a chance to sit and to keep the conversation going. But for now, let's remember where the conversation begins. You see, God's plan for racial reconciliation is found in a person. And so as we learn what it looks like to look and to hear from one another, let's begin by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.